First John 5, one, verses 1 through 5. And I think, I think it's going to be on the screen. Maybe. But you have pew, Bibles in your pews as well. So, Everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Thank you. Thank you. Right. If you have been around the church or know your Bibles well, you have probably read a verse that's going to be on the screen, Matthew chapter 11, verse 30. And this passage is one of the most precious passages in the Bible, and yet causes a great tension for most people. You read it and it says, Jesus, I'm kind of cutting him off in his context, but he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the reason why I say there's a tension here is because if you hear that, you, as a Christian, may sim- say two things simultaneously. One, that sounds so nice. And the other hand, you may be saying, I don't resonate with that. I don't feel like that, that passage makes sense to me, at least in my own personal experience. But rather, you may feel more like Jesus' condemnation in Matthew chapter 23 against the Pharisees, right here on the screen. He says this about the Pharisees. He says this, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. If you grew up in church, maybe that is your kind of personal experience with God's commands and the words. It feels more like the Pharisees' tyrannical, unbearable commands. Um, Now, my burden for you this morning is through God's word in 1 John chapter 5, is that God tells us that his commands are actually not burdensome and that we have victory in Jesus. And my burden is that so often that those passages that we just shared about and 1 John chapter 5 is not the experience that we're living in. And I want that to be true. Not perfectly, but truly for our people. And if you're a visitor, I want that to be true for you. Today, I'm going to share with you from 1 John chapter 5 some of the keys to living this unburdensome life and sharing in the victory that Jesus has already won for us. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 5. We are primarily going to have only cross-references on the screen, and that's just another reminder that we're trying to go straight to the source. So make sure you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just look on with a neighbor. We want you to know this book well. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Well, we have seen over and over again that whenever you see the word belief, not only in John's writings, but all throughout scripture, it's more than how we use in our American context the word belief. Yeah, I believe that. But belief is a comprehensive reality that whatever the object of your belief in this situation, Jesus, it's, you're saying that I am putting my trust and banking everything on all that he is, all that he says. 
It's more than just the belief the way that we use in our modern context. But notice, it doesn't just say Jesus, but Jesus is the Christ. Not generic Jesus. You have a Jesus, I have a Jesus, social justice Jesus, fundamentalist Jesus, but Jesus, very specifically, the Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name. It's a divine title that he is the Messiah. And without going into a whole sermon of what that means, just it means that he is the long-promised one. He's the God who came in flesh, the incarnate one who walked among us, who was perfect, never sinned, never not once. He's the only, not one, but the only sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we can have peace with God. And that this same Jesus resurrected from the dead three days later, and he's going to come back. He's going to judge the wicked and right every wrong. So when you say you believe in Jesus Christ, that's what you mean. If you meet someone in the street and you say, I believe Jesus, you say, oh, so you mean all that, right? It's all in one package with Jesus. We're going to see that more and more. A lot comes when you say you believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Now, look at this language here. It says, everyone believe that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. I'm going to do a little Greek nerd stuff for you just for a moment on purpose because it's, it's, it's valuable here. The Greek literally says has been fathered by God begotten by God. And this word, born of God, is in the perfect tense, which means it's something that happened in the past, in a moment, and has modern-day present effects. That's what the perfect tense does. Now, guess what this word belief is? What tense? It's the present active. Okay, let me bring that together, because you're like, I don't know what you're saying at all. Okay, Sam, all right, let me put it together. Those who have been born of God or fathered by God in the past, one of the results in the present is that they will continually believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what does that mean? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ in this room, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that this passage is saying that you have been fathered by God, that God is your dad. He has adopted you. Isn't that good? There's so much more to than just believing, but a belief is a result of this new birth, this reality that God is your dad, which leads us to the next part of this verse. And everyone who loves the father, we're going to keep this familial language, loves whoever's been born of him. So if you have been fathered by God, begotten by God, you will love the father, and you will also love others who've been born of him as well. In other words, if God is your dad, you will love your siblings because they are your family. That is the natural progression of a healthy family in an overflow of having God as your dad and because you love your father. One of the first evidences of my new birth 20 years ago was that when I was born again, I immediately, God, God did something in my heart that produced in me just a great love and affection for you if you were a Christian. So imagine me 20 years ago, more hyper than I am now, believe it or not. And if, if you're a Christian and I meet you and you, I found out you're a Christian, I'm be like, you're a Christian? No way. Can we be best friends? I love you. And I just felt a deep obligation for your good and your, your well-being and your growth in Jesus. That's just something God gave me right away. That was one of the evidences that I've been fathered by God that I had just this deep affection for other believers. And that love is only deepened, except probably less hyper the way I do it. 
and I was off-putting to many people. They're like, whoa, get away from me, guy. <laughs> there, there is no such thing in Scripture as having a great love for God and a disdain for his people. Love for God, but I don't like his kids. <laughs> for example, many of you have expressed your love for Joanna and I by loving my kids. My kids are lovable in themselves, without us, right? They're objectively cute. Some, some say the cutest, right? <laughs> I, I, not my words, but some of you have said that. But I know, and Joanne and I feel it, when you guys love my kids, and I'm not, I'm not doing this to like subtly get you guys to do more of this, but, but you guys know what I'm saying? It's like when you, any parent here, when you are, your kids are lavished with love by others, it's a, it's a d- deep connection for you. It's a, you feel the love directly. And that's how our father feels it. When we love his children, it's a direct reflection of our love for him. And he receives it as if we're blessing him directly, because he has tied himself to us. And when you bless my children, you're blessing Joanna and I. So bless my children. Just kidding, right? But you understand this. It makes sense. We demonstrate our love for our Father by the way we love each other. They're they're directly connected. They're inseparable. Remember, a few weeks ago, I taught on this. What is this word, love, in Greek? Because remember? Agape. Agape. Good. Thank you few of you, agape love, which means that love is not a feeling, it's a decision, it's covenantal, it's sacrificial, it's proactive, it's unconditional. This is the kind of love God calls us to love him because we, he has loved us like that, and this is the same kind of love he has for us to love one another, an overflow. God agape loves us, and that agape love flows to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why our second value at all people's churches love his family, because of this passage and a hundred others. Now, John is going to do something strange in verse two. We're going to go there now. He's going to go give us two evidences of how we actually agape love others, and they're surprising. They're kind of weird. It's not what you would expect, but let me explain. Verse two. If you read along with me, if you, if you, you have it, by this, sorry, not read along, but you know, read in your head, sorry. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So how do you know that you love the children of God? Well, he says if you love God and obey his commandments. How does that make any sense? If you want to know if you love other people, make sure you're loving God and obeying his commandments. What he's doing is showing that these work together in a circle, It's an all-package deal. They're inseparable. I'm going to keep saying that. If you love your siblings, you will love God and obey him. If you love God and obey him, you will love your siblings. We try to separate them. They're together. John has continued to build upon this reality by unpacking what it means to love God. Certainly, many people claim they love God. But what are further tests that help us discern in our own hearts and in our community if we're actually loving God? Well, look at verse 3 now. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I like how the NLT translates it. It'll be on the screen. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We're going to get to that second part in a moment, but simply put... It's what it says. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. Yes, the Bible is full of descriptions of love love of God that are affectionate, full of praise, awestruck, wonder, deeply emotional. But remember, 
What does agape love mean? It's decisional, it's decision, it's covenantal, it's unconditional, it's sacrificial, and so much more. So when we claim that we agape love God, we demonstrate it by actually obeying his commandments. Certainly there's more to loving God than just keeping his commandments, but it's not less than this. Hear hear that. There's more to loving God than just merely keeping his commandments, but it's definitely not less than that. Just like an adulterous husband cannot keep declaring his undying love for his wife while continually to break his marital vows. Those are nonsensical. They don't make sense together, right? Eventually, his words mean nothing. True love for God always, hear me, always manifests in commandment keeping. Which begs the question, what are his commandments? If you claim you love God, God, but you do not know your Bible, then how can you love God if you don't know what his commandments are? One side point that I want to just take, I, I wrestled if I should take this out or not, but I think it's important, is that you have to know God's word. More than just to know his commandments. We're going to get that in a minute later on in this sermon. But if you don't know this book overall, how can you know for sure you're actually keeping his commandments? If you have not read your whole Bible, let alone studied your whole Bible, how do you know there's not huge gaps of God's heart that you don't understand? Huge gaps of his ethics that you're not living in. You cannot merely depend on your pastors giving you a 40-minute sermon every Sunday to give you the whole counsel of Scripture. You need to live in this every day. And so, I want to call you, if you don't know how to study God's Word, you don't know how to fish, you just know how to eat the fish, let us teach you how to fish. Come talk with us. We want to show you how to live in God's Word. It won't be overnight, it's a lifetime. I'm still living in this. But you have to know God's word if you're going to follow him and keep his commandments and know his heart. Now, John makes a point that will cause many Christians to double take. I alluded to it in the very beginning in the intro. His commandments are not burdensome. (laughs) And the reason why so many Christians we double take is because we read that and yet it directly contradicts our own personal experience. For many, we feel like the word burdensome is the best description of his commands. What does it mean that his commandments are not burdensome? Well, let's look at this word. In the way John uses it here and other places, it has this idea of a weight that is too much to bear, and it feels impossible to carry. A weight that is too much to bear and impossible to carry. So God's commands for many feel like this. It's too much for them to bear. It's too heavy. It's impossible for them to carry on our own. So how is it that John can make such an insane claim that his commandments are not burdensome? Well, I would first of all say that a lot of Christians aren't living in this reality. It feels very burdensome because they don't understand all that God has already given them. And that's true for me. This is not something you just arrive at and you're like, I got that, no longer burdensome. It's something we can fluctuate in and out of based off how much we're getting what God has already given us and receiving it and aware and await you. So let me give you four keys, if you're a note taker, on how you can 
follow Jesus' commands in a way that's not burdensome and live in this victory. So number one, it's going to be on the screen, new birth desires. First of all, from the foundation of verse one, you have to be born again. When you are born again by the Holy Spirit, you are given a new nature, which births new desires. You don't need new activity. You need new nature. Commandments are only burdensome when you have contrary desires, aren't they? I mean, who here, and you can point to them, is a big meat eater? Big meat eater. One big meat eater. Okay, oh, there's a handful, right? You love meat. Now, in the Bible, what if it said, you must eat steak every week? Would that be a burden to you, meat eaters? No, you'd be like, I got that. I got that. I don't have a lot of things, but I got that one, right? Why? Because your desires align with the command. You want that. Now, if the, the word said, you must eat kale, raw kale without dressing, you'd be like, that is burdensome. Unless you're a born-again vegan here, right? But do you see what I'm saying? The commandments, when they link up with our desires, they're no longer our burdensome. And so what happens in the new birth? In the new birth, God has given you a new heart, new desires, not perfectly, not conclusively, but they're there. They're alive. They're birthed. And they grow over time. Remember, what, is, what does John say here? He says, obeying his commandments is evidence that you love God. So this is obeying out of an overflow of love. Anybody, anybody here who's ever been in love, it doesn't matter how tedious, how menial the tasks are, for the person you're in love with, you're like, I love it, I'll do it. It's not hard, it's easy. You think about Jacob working for Rachel for year after year doing menial tasks. And what is fueling that obedience? What is fueling those tasks? Love. His desires are helping the, the commandments not be burdensome. So from the foundation, you need to be born again. Get in a new nature, which produces new loves and new desires. And if you don't have this, you have no hope. This is, this is the foundation everything is built upon. You don't need new behaviors, but new nature. So maybe that is why, if you're in here, if you're a visitor, or maybe you've been a long-time attender, and you feel like his commandments are just impossible, it's possible that you first need a new nature. You need to be born again. And if you're not sure you're born again, I would love to talk and pray with you. And talk about how you can be born again and have God as your father. Now let's look at the next key, the second key for his commandments, not to be burdensome. Right gospel. You need to understand the gospel. You're not earning your salvation. God is already immensely pleased with you in Christ. He's already accomplished everything you could ever accomplish in Christ. He loves you through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. So your obedience is not a proving or earning. It's a overflow. Not because you have to, but you get to. Not striving to receive acceptance, but living out of an overflow of acceptance. And if you don't have this gospel, if you have a false gospel, Jesus' commands will either be burdensome for you or a great source of self-righteousness and judgment for others. You need to have a right understanding. It all comes down to the right mindset, which flows from our understanding of the gospel. Let me give you an example. Who here loves just running, just on your own, just running? Yeah, a few of you, weirdos. This is weird. It is strange. You are, you're not accomplishing anything. You're just running. It's strange. We have cars. That's why we don't need to run anymore, right? 
Now, that's how I feel. Those who love running are like, that's offensive. Running's awesome. You don't get it. But you know what I love? I love running with a ball. You give me a ball, I get to play basketball maybe once a year, <laughs> but I love it. And I could be doing dead sprints. It doesn't mean that's not hard. In fact, my side is hurting and I want to throw up when I run with a basketball. But I love it. My mindset is different. I'm like, this is great. I love this game. This is so fun. Because my mindset is different. I get to, not I have, when I run, if I have to run for exercise, like I hate it, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, right? Right? I have to do this because I need to be healthy and not die young with bad heart disease, right? But, but when I'm playing basketball, it's pure joy because I love to do it. My desires have been changed and I get to, not I have to. So if you don't have a right understanding of the gospel, it's like running if you hate running. Oh God, all right, I have to obey God. I have to do what he says. But if you understand the gospel as a response and overflow of what we get to do because he's loved us so much, because he's already accepted us, it changes the mindset when we follow his commands. Number three, the third key for his commandments not to be burdensome. Number three, abiding with Jesus. We're going to spend some time on this one. Now consider the passage I brought up in Matthew 11 about his yoke is easy and his burden is light. A lot of us, only some of us, I know your stories, grew up in a farm. And even if you grew up in a farm, you probably didn't have a yoke because you have tractors and they're faster. But if you did have a yoke, you understand something is that yokes are never for one, but they're always for two. You have this yoke that comes upon both livestock and together they're connected and together they work together and their strength is multiplied. They're able to work together to accomplish a task. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What he's doing is he's inviting his people to take upon the yoke that he's already on and join us, and we get his power. He does primarily the work. But how do you get access to such, of such power? How do you have access to yoke with Jesus? Well, throughout John's letter, we see a verb that is repeated more than any other author. Not, not agape love. He does that more than anyone else. But what's the other word that he uses over and over again? Abide. I, I, abide. There you go. <laughs> I gave you the answer. It wasn't a trick question. Abide. Let me show you a quick passage in John 15. I know we reference John 15 a lot. It's because 1 John is referring to John 15 a lot. It's connected. You have to understand John 15 to understand 1 John. Would you read this out loud while I catch my breath? I am the vine. You can do nothing. I heard it recently at a conference. When we hear that, a lot of times we think we can't do big things. We can only do some things. But he says, literally, you can do nothing. When we abide in, abide in Jesus, we will bear much fruit. If you're not bearing much fruit in your life, it's because you're not abiding in Jesus. That's the logic right there. Apart from abiding in Jesus, we can do nothing. There's a lot here, but let me talk about abiding. The way John defines abiding um, I just wrote a quick definition. It's not perfect. It's pretty good, but it's not perfect. This is how I define abiding according to John. You abide when you continue to relate with Jesus through his word and prayer and obeying him, especially by agape loving others as Christ has loved us. I need to work on that more because I like literally change things. Okay, anyway. So you get what I'm saying? This is what it means to abide, is that you're continually, you're remaining in this 
relationship, this communion with God through word and prayer and following his commands, especially loving others as Christ has loved you. That's John's big emphasis in John chapter 15 and throughout 1 John. So what, what does this all mean? Bring it to, to home to us. When we stop obeying and loving, we stop abiding. When you stop abiding, you lose his power. It works together. They are inseparable as we keep seeing over and over again. The more you obey, the more power you get from God to obey. The more you disobey, the more power you lose. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I've tried to make these compromises. There's one area of my life of unrepentant sin, whether it's bitterness or lust or pride or something that I'm holding on to, some, some, some greed. And I'm like, God, just give me this one thing. You asked for so much. Let me just have this one thing, God. I try to make this like little compromise with him. I'm really doing it with the devil, but I think I'm doing it with God, right? Like, let me just have this one thing. And it never stays one thing, does it? Because the moment you stop obeying, you stop abiding, and you sever yourself up from the vine. And when you do that, you lose his power. And so what, what happens? Every single area of my life, all my affections, my devotion, other areas of holiness that I've been victorious are now failing because I don't have his power, I don't have his joy, I don't have his energy. It all goes down because that one area, it spoils the rest of the fruit. It spoils the rest of our abiding because when you are not obeying, you are not abiding. When you stop agape loving others, when you close up your heart, you stonewall other people, you distance your people, you immediately cut yourself off from the power source. I regularly hear people who struggle with unrepented sin or they don't live in their Bible. They don't know their Bibles. They don't spend time in their Bible or prayer. It's non-existent, their prayer life. And then they tell me how hard the Christian life is. They tell me how it just takes everything for them just to show up. And you know what I could say to them every single time? Of course it is. Of course it is. Jesus has commanded us to do the impossible. You think you can love agape, love other people on your own puny, finite strength? No chance. So literally, Jesus says, here are all the things I've given you. And this is what I'm commanding you. And if you don't have this, you can't do this. And what we do is we sever ourselves from the means of grace, his communion, his word, his prayer, loving one another, not obeying him. And then we're like, but why can't I do this? So hard. So hard to follow Jesus. I feel so defeated. I feel so joyless. I feel so powerless. Do you have any unrepentance? Yeah, tons. Tons. Do you spend time at work? Nope. But I don't understand why I can't do it. I must be an exception. There must be some other background reason why I can't live this. No, 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 no. He said it right here. You, you stopped obeying, so you stopped abiding. You stopped agape loving, so you stopped abiding. And so therefore, you no longer have his yoke upon you. You no longer have his power, and you're doing it on your own. So of course, you're going to burn out. Of course, it's going to be impossible. Of course, you're going to feel despairing and defeated. It's simple, but it's hard. So if you feel powerless today and his commandments feel burdensome, it's likely at some point in the past you stopped obeying and stopped loving. You stopped drawing from the power of Christ. You had some le level of, uh, you know, uh, time healed. I'm going to just let this go. I'm, I'm going to give this up to God and, and one day it'll be fine. No, no, no. If you have any of that in your life, you are cutting yourself off from the power source. If that's you, confess every sin, every sin. Receive his forgiveness. Ask for grace to change. And then he will endow you with fresh power and joy. Talk with someone today. Hey, I have this in my life. It's drained me dry. This unconfessed sin, this bitterness, 
this lust, this pride, this selfishness, this greed. I've cut off my heart from others in this area, and it's affecting everything. The final key so that you keep his commandments and they're not burdensome is actually found in verse 4. So let's get there, and then we're going to loop back around. Victory over the world, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that over, has overcome the world, our faith. Before we can find our fourth key to his commandments not being burdensome, we're going to go back to this idea of being born of God. In verse 1, you see that if you are believing that Jesus is the Christ, you've been born of God. And now in verse 4, we see one of the results of being born of God is that you believe Jesus is the Son. And he's overcome the world. Actually, that's verse 5. Let's go stay in verse 4. I'm jumping ahead. What is one of the results of being born of God? It says here, overcomes the world. Do you see that in your text, verse 4? Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What is this overcoming of the world he's speaking of? Is he talking physical, like overcoming non-Christians? Or does he mean like overcoming physical earth, like global warming? Like what does he mean? Well, if you remember a few months ago, we taught on 1 John chapter 2, and he talks about the world's attitudes, the world's temptations. I'm going to put it up on the screen from the NLT. Would you read this slowly with me? Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. think victory over the world means a lot of things that we'll get to, past, present, future. But I think it, in context, especially talking about the temptations, the attitudes of the world, the same ones that Adam and Eve face in the garden. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan does the same temptation with them to us. John Piper summarizes this list in two ways. It's pride for what we have and pride, and sorry, and pride, sorry, lust for what we don't have and pride for what we have. And every one of us feel this tension. We feel this struggle. We feel this temptation. But this text teaches us that those who are born of God will overcome the world in its ways. These attitudes will attack you. It does not give you immunity from being attacked. You will be attacked. In fact, if you are a Christian, you'll be doubly attacked than when you weren't a Christian. Because you bear his name and he wants to take you down. But what the passage says is you will have victory. This word overcome is the same word from Nike. Same word of the goddess of victory. It's victory. You will have victory. But it does not mean we won't struggle, right? Remember, John does this all the time. He'll say something really, really strong and conclusive. And then later on in other parts of his passages, uh, his, his letter, he's going to clarify and bring more ideas. Remember, 1 John was a letter written to God's people. And it was written, it was read usually in one sitting. So they're keeping the whole letter in mind, which is hard for us to do. But let me, let me remind you, because it's important for, when you hear this word overcome, it's easy for us to think perfectionism, triumphalism. I, the, the Christian life is just easy all the time, and it's not hard. No, 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 no. His commandments are not burdensome. He didn't say our life wouldn't be hard. 
It's the commandments that are not burdensome. This life can be, in many ways, burdensome with the fallenness of the world, the brokenness of the world. But remember what John says in chapter 1. He says, if we sin, we can confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, right? In chapter 2, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So his idea of overcoming doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that you're going to win every day. You're going to take some losses. But overall, when you zoom out, it's a life of victory. It's a life of overcomer. Let me speak a pastoral word to some of you. There are some of you in this room who you are living the overcoming life, but you don't feel like it. I can see it. Others can see it. If you zoom in in that one moment where you lost your cool with your kids or that moment in private on your computer or that week that you were really off or whatever it is, it looks like you are a failure and Satan's like, loser, you fail. But what God sees as he zooms out, he sees the full picture. He sees that overall the trend is upward. The overall is more like Christ, more love, more obedience. And I just want to, for you to hear as one of your pastors, you are an overcomer, Christians. Yes, you, you took some losses this week. I did too. But overall, we zoom out. God has given you the victory in Christ. And if his seed abides in you, if you've been born of God, you've been fathered by God, he is guaranteeing your victory long-term. And I see it in your lives all the time. Some of you guys are suffering in ways that are unbelievable. And you have times of doubt, times of self-pity and and grumbling. and And God understands, but he's keeping you for the long run. And I just say, if you don't have this up, upward tra- trajectory in your life, that your whole life is just constantly falling back into the same lusts and desires of the world, as 1 John 2 says, then have concern. Maybe you're not born again, or maybe you are born again, but there's just certain things that are just keeping you in bondage. And if that's you, you don't have to wait another day in those chains, in that uncertainty, and under that insecurity. Would you come talk with one of us today and let's pray with you. Now let's bring it back to the beginning verse. Loop back around. Let's read chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 together. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Remember, I said in this passage... In the very beginning, we talked about belief. Now this section ends with belief. It's a belief sandwich that is on purpose. It shows that the victory is an overflow of true believing. We see that the one who overcomes in verse 5 is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, Jesus, John is using divine titles for God, for Jesus. He's not just saying generically Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, is connected that he is the Christ. Remember, Jesus is the beloved Son. And what happened right after we heard those words from heaven that Jesus is the beloved Son? He went under tremendous temptation under, the, of, under Satan in Matthew chapter 4. And what did he do? He conquered he was victorious. He overcome the evil one. And because he overcome the evil one, we can overcome the evil one. Jesus is tempted in all the same ways as Adam and Eve, and yet he triumphs. In the end of his life, Jesus says this. We read this earlier, but it's worth reading again. Would you read this out loud? John chapter 16. I have said these things to you. 
peace. Jesus has overcome the world. It's as good as done. The victory's final. We're just cleaning up the mess before we turn. So when we put our faith in Jesus, we're bound with him. So his victory is now our victory. The victory is passed through the cross and the resurrection. It's present in helping us conquer the world's attitudes and temptations. And it's future when Jesus returns and rights every wrong and makes all things new. All of those victories are in Jesus, only in Jesus, and because we're connected to him, because he's our brother, we're fathered by God, those victories are our victories. It's a team victory. Now, I told you that there's a fourth key to living an unburdensome life. Number four, believing in Jesus up here. And I know that sounds anticlimactic. You're like, believing in Jesus, Sam, that's like the most basic thing ever. That's Sunday School 101. But let me explain. Remember, when we talk about belief, We talk about the totality of someone, who they are. Not only their character, but what they said, what they do. That's what we say when we believe in Jesus. So when Jesus' commands feel burdensome, and we keep taking losses, and victory seems all too distant, it's because we're not believing Jesus in his word. I know that sounds simplistic. Let me explain. For example, God's word in Romans 8, which is Jesus' word, is that... You will live, if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. A lot of you know this. We tried to memorize Romans 8 a few years ago. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the spirit, you will what? Live. And yet, so often when we choose the flesh over the spirit's desire, we just simply don't believe in God. We don't believe his word. In those moments, even though you may know the Sunday school answer, even though maybe you memorized Romans 8 or parts of it, in your heart, you're still an unbeliever in that area. See, all of us have unbelieving parts of our heart. I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm saying that we still have parts of our hearts that don't believe God's word. So though you quote that to live is Christ, to die is gain, in your heart of heart, you're like, "Mm, no, I think doing this fleshly thing is going to bring me more life. I don't really believe God's word here. I mean, Why do so many of us Americans struggle with greed? We don't believe the promises of God. If we actually believe the promises of God, there's no way we wouldn't be ridiculously generous. If we understood the love of God, there's no way we we wouldn't be ridiculously agape loving others. It's when we have a dim vision of Jesus' love and his promises and who he is and what he says and our hearts don't believe is that's when there's a disconnect and his commandments become burdensome because we actually disagree with him. No, God, I I don't think you're right. I think that thing will give me more life than you. I think that thing is better than you. Even though you would never say it, our hearts believe it. So all the time, church, that I fall into these different sins, in those moments, not my whole life, but in those moments, my vision of Jesus is dim. His promises feel weak. I don't really believe his word. So this brings me back up to my call earlier to take up this book and know it so well. Because not only do you need to know his commandments, you need to know his heart, his character. And the more you grow in knowing his commands and his character and his heart, the more you're going to trust his word and take it to the bank in those moments of temptation where you actually believe, you know what? Your word is greater than my feelings and my heart. I'm going to trust you. to call out for fresh faith in Jesus, to see him rightly, to believe his word, and take his word to the bank. So let me, let me lay in the plane here. 
Maybe his commands have been feeling super burdensome lately. Maybe it's because you're not born again and you need a new nature. If that's you, come. I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you. God can be your father. He's made a way possible for you. Maybe you need to grow in your understanding of the biblical gospel. You have this debtor's ethic. You believe the lie that God did so much for you. Now, certainly you you should do things for him. You should pay him back. And you're under this crushing, burdensome, false gospel. If that's you, please ask for prayer and grow in understanding the biblical gospel. Perhaps somewhere along the lines, you stopped obeying and loving. So you're not abiding. You're not living in God's word day and night. You're trying to live this life in vain with your own puny strength. If that's you, take up the Bible and read. Follow whatever you see. Confess your sins and ask for grace to change and God will give you fresh strength and power. But it's all or nothing. Listen, I was debating if I should say this on the way here today. If you're not going to fully surrender to Jesus, don't follow him. Because the Christian life that's partially submitted to him is miserable. It sucks. It's joyless. It's powerless. Just follow the world. Give yourself to the world. See and eat and drink of its death. And then come back when you're ready to follow him with everything. When you follow him with everything, it just begets more power and more joy and more energy, which gives you more power over sin and gives you more joy and you get to follow him more. And then it's, the Christian life is joy and power. But if you half-heartedly give him pieces, it's just miserable. Don't, don't, don't do it. Jesus deserves all of your heart. And if you want the joy and victory in Jesus, it's all or nothing. And perhaps all these things are true. You're born again. You're living in God's word, but just your heart feels dry. You just, maybe you need to cry out for a fresh, fresh vision of Jesus in his heart, his character. Fresh filling of your heart to believe his promises are true for you. Not just for me or someone else, but for you. Sometimes we got to do some work to get our hearts in the right place because they're so hard. Church, do you believe in Jesus' words today? Can you take him to the bank that his word and his ways are better? And the reality is for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for some time, we have seen over and over again that Jesus' way is better. He is faithful, Right? Uh, you know those times where you take him at his word even though everything side of your flesh says no 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 that's good and you say yes and you obey and then you're like oh that's great it's good it's almost like you created me it's almost like you know the way to life it's almost like you're better that you're smarter and wiser yes he is he's all those things his promises are true they're for you he's worth it he's good he's better than that sin and he's worthy of all of our adoration and when we trust in him when we abide in him by obeying and loving we get to share in his victory and his commandments are no longer burdensome Let's pray.